Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Play, you name it, we are on it, ladies and gentlemen. And we are back with another episode now, I'm just going to jump right in because I think we all know what's happening around us with this Delta variant running around out there. Um, we unfortunately are seeing the numbers still climbing, ladies and gentlemen. 36 million total cases in the United States. We're at 617,000 deaths and counting. Fortunately, we are making progress when we talk about the vac- vaccination rates here in this country. Um, slow right? But sure progress. 71.5% of adults with at least one shot or one vaccination. And that number, um, fortunately, in recent weeks is still climbing. And I think part of that individuals just sort of seeing what's happening around them with the Delta variant going around. And it primarily, and we're going to talk about this as we go forward, but primarily affecting um, and, and showing up with complications in individuals that are not vaccinated. But we are going to do it a little bit different um, because we are all too familiar, right, with COVID-19 and its complications and economic disruption, social upheaval, especially when we talk about adults. We are aware of those complications, everything ranging from pneumonia and lung disease, the long COVID or long hauler syndrome, myocarditis, acute renal failure, you name it, COVID seems to do it. Uh, But I would say that we have been selfish up to this point, as a lot of the news coverage around us, even a lot of the research has been aimed at studying COVID-19 in adults. But um, I think it's really time that we pay attention to our children. Now, I don't want to say we were selfish as adults because, right, um, we see a lot of the complications in adult patients. And also by taking care of adults, we can sort of infer that we are taking care of our children by making sure that we stay safe and healthy. But I do want to say that, right, many of the the decisions that are being made regarding this disease and how we are dealing with it in this country and and around the world, we are not taking into 
account the complications that um, result from this disease, both directly and indirectly when we talk about our children. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I have Dr. Ramon Gist. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics and the director of the Pediatric Pulmonary and Critical Care Unit at the SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. Also, Dr. Gist is an associate director at the Kings Against Violence Initiative, a.k.a. Kavi. And um, just a shout out to Kavi and um, Dr. Rob Gore out there. So we all go back a long way. And with that said, um, we're going to discuss COVID and your kids. So, Dr. Gist, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. And thank you for joining us. And, you know, when we look at what's happening now, uh, we see cases even rising amongst children, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and the Children's Hospital Association. Nearly 94,000 cases of COVID-19 were recorded across the nation during the week ending August 5th. This accounts for 15 percent of all newly reported COVID-19 cases. And that is a 31 percent increase over the prior week in which there were 72,000 cases reported. Thankfully, though, complications are still rare with less than 2% of all children or all child cases requiring hospitalization and the mortality rate still being very low um, at ranging from 0.0% to 0.03% case fatality rates. But children still have bad outcomes from this disease. Dr. Gist, what has been your experience in dealing with COVID-19 in children up to this point? So last year, going back to the origins of the pandemic here mm-hmm. in the United States, you know, in New York, you know, you and I were both front line for that, uh, you and the ED and, and you know, in the PICU uh, where I worked. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, you know, we had devoted our resources to helping the adult doctors out because we weren't seeing children with critical illness. Um, we had diverted our PED services to other hospitals uh, to, because we as, at Downstate were designated as a COVID-19 only facility. So at that time though, we still weren't seeing even adolescents with COVID at the time. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we treated adult patients for the most part for the first two months through March and April. Got but it. then what emerged from that was this MISC phenomenon, right? Multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is the result of an exposure to SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Mm. And we saw that these children were coming in at that time with this systematic inflammation that was affecting many organs, uh, such as the skin, the eyes, the heart, the small blood vessels. But we still weren't seeing children who actually had what we know as COVID-19, the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, right? Um, fast forward to today, now we're dealing with a whole other variant. Back then it was the alpha variant, now we're at Delta, mm-hmm. right? And so Delta is seeming to be more uh, infectious, right? Uh, easier to spread. And now we have a cohort of individuals who are not vaccinated. And so what we're seeing now is, you know, children now getting this uh, version of SARS-CoV-2. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing cases um, on the uprise in parts of the country where vaccination rates are very low. Um, and so we're seeing some of that here in New York, but really where it's, it's rearing its head is in the South, where vaccination rates are, are much lower at the state level. Mm. Got it. And so as a, I guess, indirect, and I guess if we look at vaccination in it, in and of itself, um, in dealing with this illness, um, facts remain at this point, ladies and gentlemen, individuals or children under 12 years of age are not eligible for, um, any of the vaccines approved, approved for emergency use at this point. So we're talking about all of those children being unvaccinated individuals. And as you just said, Dr. Gist, that this seems to be at this time, the Delta variant primarily causing problems in that group of individuals, correct? Correct. You know, what happened another problem as well? See, at the time, back last year, people were wearing masks, people were socially distanced, we had economic uh, shutdowns. And so we weren't seeing the spread of traditional viruses that impact children. We weren't seeing what we call uh, you know, trauma. We weren't seeing lots of motor vehicle accidents. We weren't seeing as many gunshots, although that did change in the latter part of the summertime. Mm-hmm. But now we're back open. So what's happening down south is that they're having a surge in another virus that has affected children for as long as we can remember. But what's different now is that this virus is surging in the summertime. This virus mm. is called RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. And there, and there was no RSV break, breakout this past winter as it has been for as long as we've had RSV around. But now that folks are taking off their masks, folks are interacting, we're seeing an uptick in RSV infections. So that surge in RSV with the surge in COVID-19 in children, plus all the other things that happen to children in the summertime, plus surgeries and cardiac cases, renal cases, these are what's causing a strain on the capacity in these hospitals in the South. There's a term called surge capacity that we use in disaster medicine literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these cases are which are what's causing the strain on pediatric hospitals in the South, particularly in Texas, as you, you may have seen um, in the news, where they're not able to accept transfers from other hospitals because they're so full with these RSV patients and COVID patients. Got it. And so essentially what you're talking about are these, I guess we can look at this as direct versus indirect effects of COVID-19 and this pandemic. Um, and so let's say, for instance, um, and I know you mentioned multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, um, that being a direct complication um, related to COVID-19. Are there any other uh, complications that you've seen children being admitted uh, for pneumonia um, or having other complications related to direct infection from the virus itself? As you know, we are seeing now some more children who have the COVID, uh, the long haul COVID. Um, we've seen we've seen folks who've you know had exacerbations in their underlying diabetes, which we may have attributed to this MISC phenomenon. But what what folks may not know about is in hospitals, in pediatric hospitals, we've been seeing children with mental health diagnoses, 
um, that have either had suicidal attempts or ideation, um, substance use and, and abuse issues that weren't present in these same children that we've known for a long time before the pandemic. Um, we have children who have to come in for chemotherapy. Those stays are about a week to two weeks. And while they're cooped up in the hospital, they're trying to elope from the hospital. And because they feel trapped, they feel um, that they just want to be free from the confines of being indoors. And uh, so, you know, this uptick in, in mental health issues is, is something that we're not talking about a lot in children, but we need to, uh, because these kids have been indoors for a whole year. Um, pediatric mental health services aren't robust in this country to begin with. Mm. And and now we're having this uptick in children who have who have um, mental health issues. So that's that's really concerning as well. Wow. And then I guess going back to what you said with the strain already in place, right, from COVID itself, from uh, things like RSV, respiratory syncytial syndrome. Um, it just sounds like there's even less opportunity or less staff available, less resources for these same children. Yes. And, and, and that's that's the issue with surge capacity, right, in these hospitals is that, you know, the major issue, if you compare that, let's say, SARS-CoV-2 to Zika virus, right? People had the Zika virus, right? But there wasn't this huge consumption of ICU resources. So the system could deal with it, right? But it's different here with this virus because our current system is being overwhelmed. And that's why it's so important for us to contain this virus and stop the pandemic because of the effect on our ability to care for patients. Mm. Got it. And you know what? Really, I can um, sort of talk about my experience in treating primarily adult patients um, throughout the pandemic. And we've seen a similar trend um, in that especially at the the outset of the pandemic. And this was really the case in New York, right? This is why it really qualified as a disaster that was just um, in my short career, but even in the careers of my mentors, such as yourself, Dr. Gist, Dr. Gore, um, other mentors of mine and people that have been practicing a lot longer, right? This is why it was a disaster of, you know, immense proportions just because, um, yes, we were taking care of the COVID business, right? We we're in there and and dealing with those individuals coming in with complications from the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, right? Everything from the pneumonia to the kidney failure to, you know, everything, um, even long hauler syndrome now. But it crowded out all the other patients. In fact, there were many patients that were too afraid to come to the ER for, you know, issues that they would have been in the ER for. And we're talking about the individuals with heart attacks, with strokes, um, with mental health emergencies, right, that required immediate um, assistance and immediate evaluation by mental health professionals. Um, all of those individuals were crowded out or too scared to come to the ER or really, right, it was just an unsafe place. Um, and that is still something that has persisted um, because of the Delta variant and because of the surge in hospitals around the country. So it's happening with adults, but um, thank you, Dr. Just for bringing that to light, right? That this is one of the major issues when it comes to children, because although, right, we talked about those rates being low as far as the complications to, you know, less than 2% of children hospitalized because of COVID-19 directly, um, directly, 
and you know the really low fatality rate it's not just about covid and its effects or direct effects on children but it's really how it this plays out um in in the entire healthcare system and just in society as a whole and we're talking about everything from right child abuse um which we've seen rates of that uh increase especially during the, the time when um children were not in in person school and really isolated um, from support services. Um, we've seen really all of these things play out. And unfortunately, as we said, right, these are the complications of COVID, um, the direct effects, but also these indirect effects. Correct. Like, you know, when they say we have to cancel, quote unquote, elective surgeries, mm-hmm. right? right? What's elective to the system is not elective to you as a person, right? Mm-hmm. That surgery is really important. And, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, plastic surgeries here. There are other surgeries that are necessary for patients' treatment of an ongoing illness, right? But it has to be deferred because the system is being consumed by COVID. So, you know, you hear folks, you know, you know, in the lay, in the lay media and online and social media saying like, what's the big deal? The death rates aren't that high. Most people survive COVID. That's not what the conversation is about. Right. Because that's a superficial analysis of the situation. Mm. What, are the, what are the consequences of having a healthcare system where there are no more beds available to, to treat patients? That's the conversation. Right. And uh, I think that, you know, these hidden parts of the pandemic are really what makes this um, worse than it is on the service. And we're not going to realize the true effects of this until it all comes out in the hot wash. Mm. Got it. You know, I do want to take us back to the actual direct complications, too, because I think that is something, um, as you just mentioned, right, that is sort of minimized in the mainstream media. And especially when we talk about the political atmosphere, it is something that comes up frequently, right, as an argument to discard all of the precautions that we've taken up to this point, everything from social distancing, mask wearing, um, even when it comes to vaccination. And most importantly, right, when it talks about when we talk about um, vaccinating children, this frequently comes up in that, as you said, right, people are saying, oh, the death rates are low. And, you know, most children have very mild symptoms to no symptoms at all, which I will say um, that is a very fortunate thing. (laughs) Thank God. Um, Even as a father myself, um, as an uncle, as, you know, a person that just loves uh, children, um, yes, it is very fortunate that those rates are as low as we've seen them up to this point. Um, But these are not small numbers, right? When I think about this, I do think about things like measles, the most infectious or contagious disease known to man. And at that point, it becomes a numbers game, ladies and gentlemen, right? Because if we're talking about something that um, spreads very, very easily, as we've seen with this new variant of SARS-CoV-2, then these numbers, so 94,000 cases right, diagnosed by the end of August 5th, and those numbers still climbing, if we take that 2% hospitalized, right, that 2% of children hospitalized, that's close to 2,000 children we're talking about across the country being hospitalized with direct effects from COVID-19. And even if we look at that 0.03% fatality rate, that is still going to amount to, especially if these numbers keep going up, we're talking about a couple of hundred children that are dying. um, And I would even add dying needlessly 
um, across the country. So it's just something to take into account or to think about as we go forward when we talk about dealing with this disease um, in our families, in our communities, and really and when, it, when we talk about at the, at the societal level dealing with this. So um, Dr. Just, so what would you say at this point um, when we talk about, because I think this is what people probably came to this program wanting to know, right, is how do we sort of deal with this um, at this point? What does it take to protect our children um, when it comes to this disease, this pandemic? Well, I think it's very important for us as a, as a society to think beyond ourselves, right? I think I think that's what it truly requires to recover from this pandemic, right? So what does that mean? A lot of us think about, you know, children as being healthy, running around, vibrant, but people forget about the core of the population that are defined as children with special healthcare needs, right? Those are the children that are bearing the brunt of COVID-19 morbidity and mortality, right? And so, you know, while a lot of us are healthy and young and vibrant, but when it gets to those children, they can't handle COVID-19 like the rest of us do, right? So when we're talking about the real effects of, of who gets affected, children who have sickle cell disease, right? Children who have heart conditions, uh, kidney conditions, neurologic conditions. Those are the real kids who are being affected by it. So yeah, the number is quote unquote low, but these children are also are vulnerable to, to COVID-19 and also are vulnerable because they are the ones who require additional healthcare needs that are not being met because of our system being consumed with COVID. So you have the direct effects of COVID on that part of the population and then the indirect effects of them not getting their care. So what does it take for us to get through this, you asked? It takes us to stick into the basics, right? So wearing masks indoors, even if you're vaccinated, right? Avoiding large crowds, you know, social distancing and getting vaccinated, right? Um, you know, as you know, the Pfizer vaccine um, is approved, um, you know, as low as age seven, but now uh, they're going through the emergency use authorization process for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for approval from ages five and up. Mm. Um, we'll see what comes of that. And, you know, um, I know a lot of folks are concerned about the side effects of vaccines in children. I know I'm getting off topic, but your question was, what can we do? And my answer is get vaccinated. And so what's stopping people from getting vaccinated is the concerns about side effects from the vaccines. I'm not sure if you want to go there now, but I think that that's an important piece of, of the puzzle. I'm definitely willing to go there. And um, it's something that um, I think a lot of parents out there would definitely be interested in in hearing um, a little bit about that. Understood. So, you know, there, there is a, there is a justifiable, a justifiable reluctance to get a, a quote unquote new vaccine. Um, and I think given the history of, of this of this country, um, with regards to how we've treated black and brown folks um, as a medical profession. Um, you know, our profession hasn't done enough to gain the trust back of the community. Mm. So it's up to folks like you and I to get frontline and, and dispel some myths, right? And I think it's really, really important because unfortunately, again, you can't get on TV, put, you know, put a white coat on and say, trust me, that's not gonna work. 
okay? because there's too much mistrust that's un that's understandable. So I think one thing we can talk about um, is, is this a new vaccine, right? Um, you know, there's this whole thing about mRNA and what is that? Um, I don't know how technical you want to get here, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say that this mRNA vaccine technology is not new. Um, it's been in use in the oncology or cancer care world for 20 plus years, being studied as a way to treat cancers alternatively from traditional uh, chemotherapy that's very harmful to the body, as we all know. Mm -hmm. All of us know someone who has who has cancer in your audience. And so these vaccines uh, are being used to be more directed therapy with less side effects and to allow your body to naturally fight cancer itself. And so that's what we're doing here with this mRNA vaccine, right? mRNA, I know you know this, but for your audience, uh, mRNA is transformed into protein in our bodies. That protein is in, put up on your cell wall and then your body recognizes that protein is being foreign. So the next time that virus comes around, it can attack and do what it needs to do to get rid of that virus from your body, right? So, you know, that's not interacting with your DNA, as everyone's saying. Um, it's not entering the nucleus of your cell. It's simply an mRNA um, genetic code of the, of, the, of the virus that's being transformed into a protein so your body can remember it for next time, right? And these are the vaccines that are being used in children, these mRNA vaccines. So, um, I think that's one thing we need to talk about is it's not a new technology. It's It's been around for a while in the cancer world. Yes. Yeah. And and we're definitely going to going to expand on that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in future episodes, especially. Um, and this is the reality and that um, in the very near future, I do anticipate the Food and Drug Administration, if not giving emergency use authorization to the use of these vaccines, um, in children, uh, five to 12 years of age, it'll probably be full approval, right? So we need to start to arm ourselves with information so that we can make that decision, um, for our children and for our families. And so I promise we will be, um, expanding on that, but thank you very much for Dr. Gist for, for mentioning that, because I think it is something that we ought to start thinking about right now, ladies and gentlemen, not when a day happens, right? Because that day is coming. I think it is inevitable. It is coming especially with what we see is happening around us um, regarding not just the Delta variant, but emerging variants, because there will be more, right? It's something that we really need to take into account and think about. And especially, as Dr. Just said, um, especially when we talk about those really vulnerable children, these children with um, comorbid illnesses or medical problems that make them more susceptible to having bad outcomes from COVID-19. Because as we've said, Right. There are children out there that are having direct complications from this disease. And that is in addition to all the other indirect, indirect uh, effects of this illness. And so just something to think about for us to start to deal with this um, at the highest levels and in our communities. I and, do want to address one other part of the mm -hmm. vaccine, vaccine reluctance. And I know it's been in the media, especially for children. So I want to address it is there's a phenomenon that's been happening uh, you know, in certain, in certain children who received the vaccine uh, called myocarditis or pericarditis, right? Which is an inflammation of your heart muscle or the sac that surrounds uh, the heart. Um, and I know it's a concern and it sounds very scary. And, and the fact that they're reporting it, I think it gives parents some pause and saying, whoa, I don't want my child to get that inflammation of their heart. What's, gonna, what's going to happen to them? 
But what we know is that there have been no deaths from this, as, I, as far as I know, and that majority of cases have not required a prolonged hospital stay or ICU interventions. Uh, they've been very mild. And the rate of myocarditis in a seven-day period is what worried the FDA enough to report it, right? So there, it's not there's a big spike in children across the country getting myocarditis, but it occurred so proximate to them receiving the vaccine, they had to report it as a, as a concern. And it may be related to it, but thankfully, we know that it isn't causing um, uh, long-term complications, well, not long-term, complications in the ICU uh, and mortality um, in, these, in, these, in these kids. So, and it's also relative to like millions of people who are getting the vaccine. It's a very small amount of folks who are experiencing, again, this phenomenon of myocarditis uh, in children. So I wanted to just reassure your audience about that too, because they've probably seen it in the media. And it may be a reason why they're, they're, they're having pause on um, giving it to their kids. Yes. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. And, and also, just um, ladies and gentlemen, it seems to be very rare at this point. So even if this is something that is a direct result of the vaccines, um, it seems to be a very rare complication. Correct, Dr. Just that, that is correct. You know, I think as we, because the time frame is so small in which we're looking at the data, as the time horizon lengthens, what I predict is that the rate of occurrence will be probably the same as the general population, um, you know, in getting myocarditis, because it, that's a very rare syndrome and phenomenon that we see in children. Um, so it's probably going to be the same. The numbers are low, complications are even lower. So I think that, you know, we can rest assured that we've had enough of a cohort of kids that have received this vaccine and a very small amount have, have um, you know, had this complication and even less have had serious complications from myocarditis. Mm. And actually, I'm looking at it now. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System has received 1,253 reports of myocarditis or pericarditis among people ages 30 and younger who received the COVID-19. And we are talking about, right, 1,253 cases out of millions um, that have been vaccinated up to this point. Millions. So, you know, exceedingly rare, but something to be knowledgeable about, right, as this is. A potential side effect. Um, but when we look at the rates of myocarditis, pericarditis, um, when we talk about things like multi-system inflammatory children, uh, syndrome in children, right, um, really understanding that those rates too can be, you know, decently high, as we said, right, close to 2,000 children hospitalized um, out of the 94,000 cases diagnosed earlier th- this month then maybe that risk of the vaccine is lower, right? That might be um, the safer alternative so that we can avoid all of these things, these direct complications of COVID-19. We can avoid the myocarditis, pericarditis that could very well result from having a SARS-CoV-2 infection, in addition to all the other complications from that disease. Right. And now, you know, for folks in your audience who, who may be a parent of a child with special health care needs, I think that's an important discussion to have with your physician because mm-hmm. at that point, you know, you're not maybe a standard risk individual anymore. And so I think that's worth a conversation with your with your physician, particularly if you have an underlying heart problem as a child, you know, talk to your pediatric cardiologist about uh, the risks and benefits of the vaccine for you. But for the average healthy child, uh, again, the odds of 
your child getting myocarditis is very low. Got it. And so as far as when it comes to um, just the day to day, right, living with this disease, because I think that's something that we ought to also think about in that uh, COVID will not be gone tomorrow, will not be gone by the end of this year. Um, I think a lot of the experts, right, unfortunately say that the window of opportunity for getting to a reasonable degree of herd immunity where we could vanquish this illness, that right now does not seem very possible, or at least not in the near term. So as far as living with this day to day, and I mean, right, getting our children back and forth to school, um, getting our children to their doctor's appointments, and really just children living a healthy, active lifestyle, um, any re recommendations on that front, um, Dr. Gist, just so in terms of, right, protecting ourselves, but at the same time trying to you know, live life as normally as we can, but safely. I feel like we were at a place a few months ago where we were actually striking that balance where, between trying to have some semblance of normalcy to allow for human interaction to occur. I mean, that's very important for young children in their developmental processes um, that you have to have social interaction, right? Um, but we have to be safe and smart about it. And we have to you know, wear masks <laughs> uh, for children who are above the age of two, um, or assume that you don't have any other respiratory or product conditions that would preclude you from wearing a mask, your, your kids should wear a mask, right? You should wear a mask around your children. Model behavior uh, for your children. Mm. Because, you know, as, as parents and adults, mentors, kids are going to follow what we do. Um, and so it's very important for us to model that behavior um, and to not make this a political issue. It's not, this is not politics. This is about human life, right? And I think that we need to recenter the conversation around human life and, and um, allowing us to just get through this tough time. Wow. Also, you know, I think about my experience as a parent up to this point, um, ladies, and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I'll just lay that out there in terms of what we've been doing to, um, you know, do just as Dr. Just said and trying to be as safe as possible. But right. My daughter is a social butterfly. Imani is <laughs> like beyond social, um, makes friends like on a on a, you know, at the drop of a hat, like makes friends instantly, always looking for social engagement and um, trying to engage others, especially other children. And so for, you know, the time from the, the start of the pandemic to um, very recently, it was so difficult sort of managing her at home, right? And we saw the the negative effects of just not having that social engagement with other other children. Um, even even other adults. And one thing that we've done, right, is just sort of have uh, sort of groups of individuals or families that we interact with. And I'm talking even right physically um, where we do things like play dates. But these are individuals that are taking, you know, for the most part, the same precautions that we are um, at home. So I'm not saying go out there, right, and um, have your children sort of interacting with everybody at the playground, um, or going to a play space, you know, indoors. But we've definitely taken precautions as a family, including myself and my wife being vaccinated, right? Um, any family members that we interact with closely, especially um, in, in close proximity or even physically, 
right? We ensure that those individual are, individuals are vaccinated, that they mask, right, appropriately, especially when in indoor settings or in large gatherings, and really just taking the same precautions that we've sort of laid out um, up to this point in order to be as safe as possible. Can I say with doing that, that we've, right, completely eliminated the risk of um, ourselves or even our daughter um, not getting COVID-19, especially considering she is only five years of age, right? So she is not vaccinated. We have not been able to eliminate that risk completely. But um, I think there are things that we can do as individuals, as families, where we can lower that risk as much as possible. We can lower that risk as much as possible. And that's something that we've definitely been actively um, trying to do. And also, I know there's a lot of skepticism and and confusion out there regarding what we see coming down from on high from the CDC and other public health agencies. Um, but one thing I can say, right, regarding that frustration, because I definitely have experienced it. I know, Dr. Just, you probably experienced a little frustration in mm-hmm. seeing the changing recommendations uh, from time to time. But the one thing that I will point out regarding that is frustrating, frustrating as it is, those recommendations change because what we know about this disease, right, and how to protect ourselves, um, especially when we look at the data and we look at science and how this works, it has to change. All of that stuff changes, right? Those recommendations change because the science has changed. And so I do want to say that one thing that we really ought to do it or, or try to do is really just to, um, as much as we can, really appreciate and try to follow those recommendations because there is sort of a method to the madness, if we want to put it that way, or a method to the seeming madness, <laughs> if we would say that. Um, you know, there's a reason for those recommendations being the, the way they are. And as Dr. Just said, right, even as a vaccinated person, when I am around other groups, right, we are back to masking indoors. That's because, right, this Delta variant, very different from the initial um, version of SARS-CoV-2 in that this one is more contagious. Um, and there is data out there showing that even individuals that have been vaccinated, they can still not only be infected with this, with the illness, but they can also spread the virus. And so, hey, I need to mask up. Even those that are, that are vaccinated around me, they should mask up because we know, right, based on the data that this is a virus that can still be spread amongst vaccinated individuals. So I know it's frustrating, but those recommendations have changed for a reason, because the virus has changed and what we understand about it has changed. I wanted to add uh, to the point, because uh, that's a very common reason I hear uh, for folks not getting the vaccine is that, oh, if I can get vaccinated and still get it, quote unquote, what's the point? <laughs> right. But I, I think that we have to differentiate between testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 and having COVID-19. Those are not the same thing. Mm. It's important for us to, to differentiate that. You're like, yeah, you got it, quote unquote, but are you sick? Are you in the hospital? Or are you asymptomatic or having a, or having a, a sneeze, right? I think that's the difference. As I mentioned in the beginning, why this pandemic is so different from others is because of the strain it creates on the healthcare system. That's what makes it different. So if you only get a sneeze or have no symptoms, versus being laid up in the ICU, that's a success, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that's what we're looking for is to not crash the healthcare system again. That's the reason why we need to have the vaccinations and the mask wearing so that we can allow the hospitals to function um, as readily available to care for patients as possible. It's not possible to provide quality care when you're caring for patients who are critically ill in a non-ICU. But that's what we're having to deal with right now. And so how can we help that? Look at this as an issue bigger than ourselves, protect those around us who are vulnerable, right? That's how we have to think about this, right? Mm -hmm. So you can still test positive, but you will not be in the hospital or with a breathing tube down your throat. That's the difference. Mm. And I, I want to bring attention to one one last thing as we begin to um, wrap up, Dr. Gist, because prior to us um, uh, sort of, you know, getting into the show um, in our discussion initially, and I don't want to jinx anything, too. That's why I'm very careful in how I word this. <laughs> the only place I'll put it out there, ladies and gentlemen, the only place where I am superstitious is in the emergency department or in medicine. <laughs> so I'm trying not to jinx um, New York City right now. Um, but you did say that right now things seem to be pretty okay, right? Or we're not seeing the surges that we're seeing in other parts of the country, especially those parts of the country where the vaccination rates are lower. Is that correct right now? That is correct. Uh, New York State has about a 70% plus vaccination rate. Some of these states have about a 30 to 40% vaccination rate. And we know from from you know just immunology knowledge that you need about a 80% vaccination rate to achieve herd immunity. And um, I think that we're seeing the repercussions of that. Yes, we do have some uptick in hospitalizations um, in New York, um, but our death rate isn't taking up like it was before. Um, we're not being overwhelmed as we, as we were before. Again, I'm knocking on this plastic table. Word. Yeah, I'm, I'm knocking on wood right now <laughs> as we speak, banging um, on it. But, but uh, I think that's the difference. I think the proof is in that pudding right there. Um, and I, I'm hoping that as folks, you know, get vaccinated, you know, in increased numbers that we can, you know, put some of these uh, these surges to bed. God willing, that that is the case. Um, and so hopefully, like, a, like, like Dr. just said, hopefully that is the proof in the pudding for individuals out there, right, that are still on the fence. Um, when we talk about vaccination and even if, so let's say, right. because I have to play devil's, devil's advocate on this program. And, um, I know that we, there are individuals out there that are pretty resolute in their decision, right. And it is a personal decision to say whether or not you want this at this point, or at least until, um, uh, you know, with the falling of mandates and stuff and all of that, unfortunately there will be people that will have to be pressured into, um, getting vaccinated. But for right now, if it is your not your decision to get vaccinated, right? Um, one thing I will say is that please exercise precaution um, in the other ways that we've mentioned, including, as we said, masking, right? I agree with Dr. Gist, not a political issue um, because uh, unfortunately you can take your politics to the grave. And we've seen that um, at this point in this country in those swaths of, of, or groups that are not vaccinated. Those are the individuals having complications at this time. Those are the individuals ending up in hospitals. And unfortunately, those are the individuals that are at this time dying in much larger numbers compared to those that are 
vaccinated. Um, but if you're not going to vaccinate, please wear a mask, employ right social distancing, and really do everything you can to minimize the spread of this virus and also for the protection of yourself, right? Because um, I think that's one thing too in that um, individuals, unfortunately, at this time in this country, a lot of people want to look out for themselves, totally understandable. Um, and if you are in that vein of thinking, well, guess what? The way to protect yourself, um, especially if not vaccinated, you, you have to socially distance when you can. And if you cannot um, wear a mask, right, you have to do something to protect yourself because I think, um, you know, as many of us have really come to understand uh, at this point is that this is a truly deadly disease. And even if we don't talk about just the, again, the direct complications related to this, and we talk about the social fallout, everything from children not getting their regular medical care, children, right, um, not being able to get medical services or having mental health complications because they cannot be taken care of adequately. But even if we talk about the economic fallout, right, putting food on the table for yourself and your children, um, there are just so many levels in which this disease affects all of us. And one thing that is really certain at this point is we will all be doing better once we get better control of this illness. And so going forward, just try to keep that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, as we move forward in, in dealing with this. I wanted to add something to, to that the discussion. And this is not necessarily science, but it's, it's, it's important people to look at the, this is an issue bigger than themselves. I see it all the time that, you know, the decision to get vaccinated is a personal choice. And, and I think that that's a little bit of a. Uh, yes, and I think in, in, on its surface, it is a personal choice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I look at it as a personal choice that has a larger implication. You know, you live somewhere else. I, I live in New York City. Like, that's a personal choice that has no Im- implications for anyone else other than my family and I, mm-hmm. right? But I think personal choices that impact our society should not be, you know, um, looked at the same as whether you want to wear uh, design fashion or not, mm-hmm. right? Or whether you want to be a vegan or not, um, or whether you want to wear play PlayStation Xbox, right? Those are personal choices. But the choices that we're making now are impacting our society. So it's not mm-hmm. just a personal choice. We have to look at that. How do our choices affect those around us? And I think um, in this country, we have to to do a better job by looking at things at a community level and not just the individualistic freedom level, right? And I think I, I think those are two different paradigms of looking at what responsibilities do we have to our society and, and the community and what impacts do our personal choices have on others? Facts. And I, I do have to add it, and I don't want to put myself on a pedestal or anything or my colleagues or anybody else, but I, I can tell you from experience and even from my own personal experience that that was a part of my thinking, right? As a healthcare provider, um, yes, Maurice Donovan Selby wanted to protect himself, right? When the vaccines um, became available, when they were shown to be um, not only very, very efficacious or very effective, but also very safe. I said, you know what? This is something that is in my personal best interest. But this was not just a personal decision because it was a decision for 
my wife, right? Because I'm around COVID patients all day, every day at a very high risk of bringing that home um, to my family. And so, right, in getting vaccinated, that was definitely in my thinking. I want to protect my family. I want to protect my patients. That was another thing in my head is that, hey, I'm going to be working around people that don't have COVID or haven't been exposed to it, right? And I don't want to be the person to give that to them as their healthcare provider, um, providing care to patients, right? Intimately, right? Examining them, touching them. Um, and so that was definitely um, in my thinking. And so I will say this as well, just to add to Dr. Gist, um, in that that was a, a personal decision that I made on behalf of myself, but also my community, those around me. And if we want to get even larger than that, right, for the country, because I knew, hey, this will protect not only myself, but also, um, you know, potentially protect me, pr uh, stop me from giving it to other individuals. And I took the risks of, right, that vaccine at a very early stage, right? We didn't have nearly as much data as we have now um, showing how effective and how safe it is, how safe it is. Um, so I took that, right? I, we took that risk. I know Dr. Just took that risk um, mm -hmm. very early. And so now, right, um, this is a, a personal call to everyone out there that has not been vaccinated, right? I took my chance. Now I'm asking you to do the same because that was definitely in my head when I took the vaccine myself. Um, even if you want to call it experimental, because I know there's people out there making that argument, oh, it's only emergency use authorization. It's still experimental, which it is not. Um, but I was a guinea pig. <laughs> I was a guinea pig. And right, um, millions of other healthcare providers out there, millions of other frontline workers out there were quote unquote guinea pigs. And so we did that. And so now, right, it's your turn, I think, to right, not to make this an adversarial thing. Um, but I think that thinking about it in that fashion can definitely help going forward, ladies and gentlemen, because, right, the only way that we're going to get over this virus, the only way that we are going to get back to some semblance of normalcy, um, vaccines will be a major component in that, a major factor in that. Um, and especially as we go forward in thinking about what's going to happen with children when these vaccines are approved for use in children. And so I'll put it out there. My daughters are on deck. Um, they are on deck. There's no question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. Gist. And before we wrap up, I want to really just ask you if if you can sort of boil this down. I know we've had a long discussion about this. But if an individual was to take one message home tonight um, from this program, what would you say is the most important thing that a person needs to take from this conversation? I think the most important thing uh, that we should take from this conversation is, again, uh, think about this pandemic and your role in it and how it impacts, how your decisions impact those around you, right? And I think that encompasses mask wearing, vaccination, vaccinating your children, uh, talking to your doctor if you have underlying health conditions, all of those are ways in which you are looking out for your community. And I think that if we reframe how we think about each other and not be so polarized and look at look at us as a unit, because we're in this together, whether you know, whether you whatever your politics are, we're we're here together in this country. Right. So like let's look at this as something bigger than ourselves, let's educate ourselves. And um, I think if we 
have that mindset, I think we can get through this um, in a better way than we have so far. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Gist. Um, much appreciated. And we really um, appreciate you taking the time to join us on Health in Harlem and our listening audience um, so that we can really just get the best information out there possible so that we can all live a happier, healthy life, even in the face of COVID-19, because it is possible. It is. And I still have hope that we can get a much better handle, as you just said, a much better handle on this pandemic, on this crisis. Um, there is still there's still strides to be made. And I think we we can get much better control of this um, as we go forward. And so with that said, thank you very, very much. Um, for taking the time he's a busy man ladies and gentlemen because he's talking about <laughs> just like how much hustling he has to do this weekend and you know as the director of one of the busiest um uh, pediatric intensive care units um in the the city of new york which we know is one of the right the greatest cities on the face of the planet he definitely has his work cut out for him there and so we thank you for really just taking this time to spend with us and also you are definitely welcome to join us um, on future programs whenever whenever you are available and willing um, we will always love to have you back on the program and also I just want to shout out also a um, City College alum um, yeah we gotta we gotta get that out there man. <laughs> City College doesn't get enough love so we gotta give it love when we can um, and the Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education as well I want to shout them out um, I want to shout out the rest of our team on Health in Harlem Giorgio Reed, um, Anastasia, Ashley, uh, everybody out there, Michael Holmes, just want to shout you all out um, and show love. They are still with us, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's just been hustling in their own rights, and um, we will be reunited on a future program. And also just be on the lookout, ladies and gentlemen, as we will be having more specific programming regarding returning to school safely. Um, as we know, there will be in-person um, classes not only in New York City, right, with really no um, definite, complete homeschool option. Um, so kids are going to be going back to school and we're going to talk about how to keep your children as safe as possible. And as I said, also, we will be talking about um, vaccination of children against COVID-19, um, as that is something that is on the horizon, um, considering the studies going on at this time, the trials going on at this time seem to show what we've seen with the data for adults and that it is a safe and effective um, therapy to be given to children. So definitely something we want to talk about early and really address any concerns out there that you might have. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, this show, as always, is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.